0: Welcome to AM Best Audio.
1: The number of data breaches, denial of service attacks and other types of cybersecurity incidents continues to rise and a growing number of organizations are turning to cyber insurance to bri- provide coverage for any resulting liability, business interruption, regulatory fines and repairs to result from those incidents. However, while cyber insurance is a vital tool in providing those coverages, it has not improved cybersecurity or reduced cyber risk, according to Josephine Wolf, an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and author of the book, Cyber Insurance Policy, Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyberattacks. I'm Lori Chortis for Ambass TV. Josephine Wolf joins us now to talk about her book, why she believes cyber insurance has not curbed cybersecurity losses, and what insurers, governments, and others can do to make cyber insurance a more effective tool for cyber risk management. Josephine, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us about your book and how the idea for it came about?
0: Sure. So I'm somebody who's been interested for a long time in the question of who pays for cybersecurity incidents and when all the dust settles and all of the lawsuits settle and all of that, who actually has money on the line? Because I think that's a really important piece of understanding who has incentives to invest in cybersecurity and make the data and networks that we rely on more secure. And so I did an earlier project that was really just tracing the aftermath of different incidents and data breaches and trying to understand who's paying for these, what kinds of incentives does that create. And one of the things that I heard from a lot of people while I was working on that project was, well, you know, it's a bit of a mess right now. We don't really know who's liable. There are a whole bunch of different companies and organizations involved, but the insurers are going to step in in a few years and they're going to sort all this out right? That's what insurers do. They manage expensive risk for us. They help us figure out sort of who should be paying under what circumstances, and they can impose requirements on all of their policyholders for what they have to do to manage their own risk. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting idea. Maybe I should go learn something about cyber insurance, if that's really going to be the, the industry that comes in and sorts out these questions of liability and costs that are so important to me. And so I started researching the insurance industry, which is the the project that grew into this book. And one of the things that I sort of came to feel really strongly and that the book argues is that actually sort of all of the mess and complexity that we saw in the liability space pre-insurance or when insurance was a, a much smaller part of sorting out, the aftermath of cybersecurity incidents in many ways was also making it very difficult for insurers to manage this type of risk in the ways that they've managed other types of risk, right? You have know, floods or hurricanes or medical risk or car accidents. And so this book is really my exploration of trying to understand in what ways are cyber risks different? In what ways are they not sort of susceptible to the same kinds of tools and actuarial science that other types of risk are? And, and what do we do about that if we, if we buy that argument?
1: So what's driving the rise of cybersecurity attacks today?
0: It's a great question. Um, and I think there are, you know, a couple different things. But the, the biggest one is that for many of the sort of financially motivated cybercriminals out there, they're still profitable, right? And we've seen cybercrime go through a couple different stages of evolution, right? We've seen sort of, you know, the theft of payment card numbers, and then it gets a little bit harder to profit off of that, First of all, because there are so many stolen payment card numbers out there that the, the cost for each stolen one is going down. Um, second of all, you know, we get chip enabled credit cards. It becomes a little bit harder to use that data to make fraudulent purchases. So then we see people start stealing medical records or tax records. And then we see the shift to ransomware where you're using sort of direct extortion based on cryptocurrency payments. And all of those contribute to the fact that you can still make a lot of money. Off of cybercrime during the pandemic when it's hard to to do a lot of stuff in person but people are working online and remotely a lot you see i think even more incentive to try and steal money or steal secrets there's also a huge cyber espionage uh set of activities that that drive some of this security and and sort of defensive efforts and and i think that the sort of main driver is that there's more and more money changing hands online. There's more and more sensitive and important information being stored on computers. And we have not been able to keep pace with the question of how do we protect that data? How do we protect those networks? Um, And instead, what we're doing is we're moving more and more important infrastructure onto computer networks, right? So you think about things like the colonial pipeline attack or stuff like that. What's happening is our idea of modernizing infrastructure is creating, in some ways, more vulnerabilities, at least more vulnerabilities to cyber attacks, perhaps fewer vulnerabilities to other types of attack, Um, and, and that the stakes for each of those attacks are rising as we move more critical infrastructure online and we create opportunities for attacks that can shut down fuel pipelines or shut down meat processing plants or have, you know, many impacts beyond just your credit card number is stolen.
1: You say in the book that cyber insurance has not improved cybersecurity or curbed those losses. Can you explain that? Sure. So I think this is, you know, certainly one of the most controversial parts of the book, and and
0: it's one of the things that I think insurers feel perhaps fairly is a lot to put on them to say, you know, well, why should we be improving cybersecurity? That's that's not our job. I've had insurers say to me, our job is we spread losses. So when somebody gets hit, you know, we help pay out the the claims, and that's that's really our role is just to sort of spread the losses that way, so nobody goes bankrupt responding to a cyber attack. Um, And I, I think, you know, that's one way to look at insurance, but the way that I came into this project looking at insurance and the way that a lot of people, policymakers, insurers were kind of selling the idea of cyber insurance five or six years ago was insurers are not just gonna help spread losses, but they're also going to collect all of this really great data on cybersecurity incidents. Because one of the problems we have in cybersecurity is there's a very small set of incidents that actually have to be reported, right? So if your personal information get stolen from a company, then pretty much every state now has a law that says you have to report that. But if it's a ransomware attack, if it's an espionage attack, if it's a denial of service attack, most of those don't have to be reported. So one problem we have is just no good data about sort of where are these attacks happening? How frequent are they? How much do they cost? And the insurers kind of said, look, this is one of the things we do. We collect data about all of our customers and the losses and claims that they file, and we can use all of that data to generate really good information, really sort of empirically grounded results about what people should be doing for cybersecurity, and does it actually drive down the rate of attack if there's good encryption in place, if there's multi-factor authentication, if there's all this other stuff that we kind of talk about vaguely as best practices, but we don't necessarily have a lot of really good empirical evidence to support. Um, And and so that was, I would say, in my mind, and when we look back at kind of the meetings in 2013, 2014, 2015 that the government is hosting around cyber insurance, the big selling point, we're going to collect this great data. And not only that, but because we renew policies every year or so with our policyholders, we're going to have a really good way to kind of require whatever we find are the actual most effective security practices of all of those policyholders, because they're going to come back to us, they're going to want to renew their policy, and we're going to say, sure, but to renew this policy, you have to implement these 10 things that we found really work to drive down the rate of cyber attacks. And I think that is the piece of this that has really been missing over the past 25 years or so, is that we haven't seen the insurers, for the most part, able to gather that data And what data they have been able to gather has not actually shown us very clearly, oh, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you're actually able to drive down the risk of cyber attack. So you contrast that to something like seatbelts for cars or smoke detectors for fire safety, right? And you, you sort of are missing the part where the ability to collect data shows us some really clear, important and effective safeguards that if insurers require will actually have an impact on people's overall safety. Um, and I think if you look at not just sort of the overall data about cyber attacks, because of course, you know, there's there's no way of knowing how many cyber attacks there would have been this year if there hadn't been an insurance market. So that's a very hard thing to compare. But if you look at the insurers, what they say about their own claims data, what they will say is we don't see a lot of correlation between the various safeguards we require of our policyholders and the likelihood that they're going to be breached or attacked. And not only that, but where, where we're trying to collect this data, sometimes we're not even able to get it, right? Sometimes we're told, oh, the details of that attack are protected under attorney-client privilege, or you know, we don't want to reveal that because it might lead to a lawsuit, and so I think there are some, some really significant gaps in what we hoped insurance would, would provide in this space and what we've actually seen so far.
1: Can we just take a step back a bit and just could you tell us a little bit about the history of cyber insurance and what it provides? Sure. So the
0: history of cyber insurance, we usually date to 1997 because that was the year that the first kind of dedicated internet security liability policy was offered. It wasn't the first time that you know any computer-related risk had ever been covered in, a, in an insurance policy. It was the first time that somebody, a, a guy named Steve Haas, had really sort of sat down and thought, what would it mean to write an insurance policy specifically for computer and internet-related risk? Um, and, and the thing about those early policies in the late 90s, early 2000s, is they're pretty focused on one type of risk, They're pretty focused on data breaches of personal information because, first of all, that's sort of the type of breach that we knew about at that time, right? People would kind of hear, oh, my gosh, my data has been stolen. You know, maybe I should sue. And so that, that lawsuit or the risk of that lawsuit was the big cost associated with those kinds of breaches. And second of all, as you get into the early 2000s, a lot of states start passing these data breach notification laws. Let's say, you know, if if you are responsible for a breach that involves customer sensitive information or personal information, you're gonna need to report that either directly to your customers or to the state attorney general or, or to someone along the way. And so as that starts happening, a lot of companies that traffic in user personal information, so like big retailers that are collecting a lot of payment card numbers, start worrying a little, oh well, this this seems like something that if it happens to us. We might have to hire lawyers, there might be a class action lawsuit, and there are these data breach insurance policies that are springing up around that time that say, okay, we'll, we'll help you pay for all of that. Sorry. Um, we'll, we'll help you sort of send out the notification letters and hire the lawyers and cover all of the fees associated with that. And, and that turns out to be a you know, relatively niche market but a somewhat effective one for folks which are kind of in this space of really worrying about those legal costs or what we might call third-party costs, right? So it's not you have a data breach and all of a sudden you directly lose a ton of money You have a data breach, you're worried about lawsuits, you're going to have to hire lawyers, you maybe have to pay settlement fees. And then as we shift into sort of the 2017-2018 period, there's a lot of interest from companies and not just the retailers, but all kinds of organizations in the first party costs associated with cyber attacks. So that would be something that really directly affects your organization and costs you money. So you have to replace all your computers or payment terminals, or you have to pay a ransom Um, Or you lose business for some period of time because all your computers are shut down and you can't manufacture or sell or process orders or whatever it is. And so that's when we see the cyber insurance policies really expand in terms of what they'll cover to say, we're going to cover all these things. We're going to cover ransom payments. We're going to cover business interruption. We're going to, you know, sort of go through all of this list of of concerns that firms have and, and try to provide coverage. And I think on the whole, that makes it a a much more interesting and certainly a much larger industry that that attracts a lot more customers. But it also makes it a much more complicated industry because we're no longer sort of focused in on a single threat. And that, I think, is is where you start to see kind of the modeling and, and the actuarial science fall apart a little because it's now encompassing such a wide range of cyber attacks and so many types of cyber attacks that we have no data for. Right, the thing about the data breaches is they had to be reported by law. We knew something about how often they happened, about how much they cost. You get to ransomware, none of the insurers really have any idea how much ransomware there is out there. And you see that in the 2019, 2020 data when there's this huge spike in ransomware claims and the insurers have to start
1: really, really jacking up their premium prices to keep pace with that. So how does cyber insurance compare to other insurance sectors such as auto and flood insurance? So cyber insurance is still relatively small compared to those is what I would say,
0: um, right? You're, you're looking at, you know, somewhere probably between 8 and $10 billion in premiums a year now for cyber insurance compared to something like $200 billion a year in premiums for personal auto insurance. On the other hand, cyber insurance has been growing much faster than other sectors of insurance. This is particularly true sort of before those premium increases that I was talking about. You were seeing sort of 30% growth year over year. And so for a lot of insurers, it's sort of looked like the future of the industry, or at least the way to grow their business if they wanted to, to expand. Um, so many, not all insurers sort of got interested in the space, started selling variations on kind of general cyber risk policies. Um, and what I would say is it compares to the other insurance sort of sectors as a, a much smaller product, not just in terms of how many customers are buying it, but also in terms of how much coverage you can buy. Right, So you, you think about sort of big companies buying property and casualty insurance, they can have more than a billion dollars worth of property and casualty coverage. The big companies that are trying to buy cyber insurance right now cannot get nearly as much as they want. Right? You can go to one carrier, you can get maybe 10, 15, maybe 50 million dollars worth of coverage if you're, if you're really big. Um, and then you can go to other carriers and sort of try to stack each of their cyber insurance coverage on top of each other. But it's still very hard to get large policies. And it's hard to get large policies because the insurers are not confident in their ability to predict how frequently they're gonna have to pay those out. Um, so it's, it's a smaller market, not just in terms of the number of customers, but also in terms of how much coverage you can get. And it's also, I think, uh, a much sort of more uncertain market in terms of reinsurance, whether reinsurers are gonna be w- willing to reinsure this risk. It's uncertain in terms of whether the insurers themselves are going to pay out. So for instance, there's been a lot of controversy about claims around state-sponsored cyber attacks. Um, And I think in general, one of the things that really characterizes it is this lack of certainty on the part of policyholders about, well, will this really cover the cyber attack that, that comes next year? Or will there be some, some excuse, some reason to deny my claim about you know, who perpetrated this attack or what kind of attack it was? Whereas I think most of us feel pretty confident with things like you know, auto insurance. Okay, if I get into a car accident, my insurance will cover this, right? And, and there's less uncertainty about sort of will this or won't this actually pay out the way I want.
1: There have been a number of legal disputes between insurers and policyholders about whether cyber related losses were covered under policies designed for liability, crime, or property, and casualty losses. Can you tell us about some of those disputes? Yeah, so one
0: of the things I spend a lot of time on in the book are these legal disputes that happen when an insurer denies a claim. So somebody comes to them and says, you know, this should be covered by my cyber insurance. And they say, no, absolutely not. And I think those are a really interesting set of disputes. Partly because they're the ones we have the most insight into when they go to court um, and you actually kind of get, get a, a record of what arguments everybody's making on both sides. And also because I think they show the range of kind of how broad these policies are. When you start writing a policy for cyber risk, everything involves computers in, in some fashion. So, for instance, one of the cases I discussed briefly is uh, an organization that's affected by the Madoff Ponzi scheme, um, and they file a claim under their computer crime insurance coverage, and they're like, hey, he sent us invoices that were faked, made using a computer. And so this is kind of a computer crime, because Bernie Madoff was, was using a computer to do this. Um, and these are, just, no, this isn't a computer crime, right? Like, sure, there was a computer involved, but there's a computer involved in everything. Um, And so there's a really interesting set of disputes around crime that really hinge on that question of sort of what is actually a computer crime and what is just a crime that happened to involve a computer. And I think the most interesting set of disputes there are really related to phishing emails and this question of, you know, okay, if a company receives an email that looks like it comes from one of their vendors or, or somebody they know and it has an invoice attached to it that seems legitimate, and then they go ahead and pay that invoice and it turns out that it was fraudulent. It turns out it didn't go, the money didn't go to who they thought it did. Then is that a computer crime because somebody used the sort of email infrastructure to trick them into doing this? Or is that their fault because they fell for that email and they transferred the money voluntarily, right? And so a lot of insurers make this distinction between saying, okay, that's not a computer crime. That's you making a mistake as opposed to if a hacker is able to log into your accounts remotely and transfer money out of them, where that's really clearly a computer crime. You had no sort of opportunity to make a decision to to stop that. The other set of legal disputes that I think is really interesting, especially right now, are the legal disputes around what we call the acts of war exclusion. And the acts of war exclusion is a sort of old idea in insurance, which is basically insurers can't predict war, right? Like war is, you know, big and expensive and based on all sorts of factors that it's very difficult to predict into the future. So a lot of types of insurance have a kind of blanket exception written into them that says this, this does not apply to costs incurred by warlike acts or, you know, anything that sort of we couldn't predict. And this, these fights go all the way back to Pearl Harbor when you have the families of people who died there filing life insurance claims. And insurers coming back and saying, no, we're not going to pay for this. This was a, an attack we could never have predicted. This was a war, an act of war. Um, and the family said, well, it wasn't an act of war because Congress didn't actually declare war until the next day. right?" And a lot of those go to court and, and the courts kind of come down in different ways on whether or not they think Pearl Harbor is an act of war. You have a similar dynamic many, many years later um, around a cyber attack in 2017 called Pecho. And NotPetya is an attack that's launched by Russia, it's directed at Ukraine, it's distributed using Ukrainian accounting software, but it spreads very quickly across Ukrainian borders and affects a lot of companies all over the world. Two of those companies, one is a multinational food company called Mondelez, another is the pharmaceutical company Merck, actually go to court when their insurers refuse to pay out these these claims for NotPetya-related damages. And the the lawsuit is basically, is not Pecha an act of war, right? It's the Russian government targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. There are ways in which we might think of that as war. But there's also a sense in which, you know, Nation states are launching cyber attacks every day, and if every single one of them is going to be considered an act of war, then these these insurance policies cover a whole lot less than the people paying for them thought they did. And so I think those are also a really interesting set of disputes around kind of when does a cyber attack cross over into the realm of war? And if it doesn't, and so far sort of the early rulings we've had in the Merck case suggest courts are not super sympathetic to that idea, then I think we're going to see insurers, as, as we've already started, to start writing new exclusions to say, look, we don't want to pay for the really big kind of state-backed cyber attacks.
1: So what can insurers, governments and others do to make cyber insurance a more effective tool for cyber risk management?
0: So I think the first thing um, that's really important here is to have some more clarity and certainty for the people buying cyber insurance, as well as for the people selling it about what it actually does and does not cover. Um, And that's both about sort of specifying more concretely what's an act of war when we're talking about cyberspace or what's going to be excluded as a state-backed cyber attack. But it's also about all of these smaller questions. What's actually a computer crime? What sorts of cyber-related risks are going to be covered under each piece of these types of policies? Because it is true that computers are involved in many kinds of risk at this point, and they're only going to become more so, right? Our cars are only going to become more computerized. Our car accidents, therefore, are only going to involve more elements of cyber risk. And I think that one of the things that people have really struggled with in cyber insurance so far is understanding, okay, what's included, what's excluded. And the insurers, I will say for them, have struggled as well, because it's hard to predict what the next sort of big wave of cyber attacks is going to look like or how it's going to work or what it's going to target. And so it's hard to say in advance, like, we'll cover this, but we won't cover that. And I think sort of coming to the question of what governments can do, there's absolutely also a role for regulators here. Because, for instance, one of the things that governments do when there are really expensive uh, attacks, like, for instance, September 11th, um, and insurers say, we can't pay for this, right? This is not something that we predicted in our models. This is not something we can afford. Um, The U.S. government at that point stepped in and passed the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act and says, okay, we're going to help pay for this terrorism risk because it's really big and it's really expensive. Um, And there are a lot of people in the insurance industry who would like to see the government do something similar to that for really big cyber attacks and clarify kind of what would what kind of cyber attack would trigger a government backstop. And I think that would also be valuable here because it would allow for insurers to kind of say, okay, here's where government support stops at this kind of attack, and here's where, where our coverage picks up. And I think that sort of some crisper definitions around that would leave policyholders feeling like, okay, I, I think I kind of understand what I'm buying and, and what I still need other protection for, whether from, from the government or someplace else. I think another piece of this that's really important for, for policymakers um, is the question of sort of how insurance is propping up the ransomware industry. Right now, so one of the things that cyber insurance pays for, many kinds of cyber insurance pay for now, is ransom payments. Um, and there's there's a whole controversy around sort of should you or shouldn't you pay ransoms. But one thing that that's very clear is that if you have insurance, um, then the money that's going to those criminal actors is not coming out of your own pocket. It's coming out of your insurers and that's that changes the calculus of sort of how willing are people to pay and how much does it actually hurt them to make those payments that's a very big deal at a moment when we know that say North Korea is funding a lot of its weapons programs out of extortion based cyber attacks at a moment when we know that sort of the more ransoms that are paid the more money the criminals and and other actors perpetrating them have to continue doing that and the more lucrative this industry is Um, And so I think you're starting to see some local and state policymakers at least really scrutinize that and say, "Okay, well, if if insurers are going to be covering ransom payments, do we want local government organizations to be making those ransom payments? Or do we think that's inappropriate? Because we've seen insurers pay out for a lot of local government ransom claims as well. Um, And and my hope is that there's going to be a lot more sort of focus on that and and interrogating how the insurance industry is, is enabling ransomware and thinking about whether we can regulate it in ways that actually make ransomware a less viable criminal model moving forward.
1: So Josephine, what do you hope readers will take away from your book?
0: I think the thing that I'm sort of most hoping at a high level readers will take away are some of the ways that cyber risk is difficult to categorize and quantify and lump together um as compared to other types of risks that we do that for very effectively right and so if you say you know well we we had a new technology the car and we were able to put together a, a pretty effective insurance industry to cover those risks i think there are really significant differences there in terms of kind of how self-contained cars are how completely you can enumerate the risks that come out of the car, How? and I don't just mean to single out the car, I think this is true of floods to some extent. Um, I think this is true of crime in various ways outside of cybercrime, that you can kind of class together, okay, here are the risks, I'm going to write a policy that sort of enumerates them, explains what's covered and what's not covered, and I'm going to collect data and build models for them that I think are actually pretty reliable for predicting what's gonna happen next year based on what's happened for the past hundred years and various other kind of factors that I know are important. And I think cyber risk is tricky for a lot of reasons to treat in that same way. I think it's tricky because it's a whole bunch of different types of risk. Um, all linked to kind of computers, I think it's tricky because it's not clear that kind of past data is predictive of the future. I think it's tricky because you're you're lumping together some really rare, really big events like colonial pipeline, like solar winds, um, with some sort of very small quotidian stuff that's more analogous to like your one off car accident where you know a company loses some data or has a small ransomware attack and trying to kind of do both of those things at once and incorporate all of those different types of risk and all of those different risk models has meant that we're actually, I think, not able to treat this kind of risk in the same way that we treat all these other types of risks that we manage largely through insurance.
1: Josephine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Josephine Wolf, Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and author of the book Cyber Insurance Policy Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyber Attacks. For AMBAS TV, I'm Laurie Chortis.